So we're five days in to the new year. And some of you, many of you, maybe, uh, we're, we're five years into some new, or five, five years, I wish. I wish. Five days into some New Year's resolutions. Still going? Still got them? Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, I don't know if you do the resolution thing or not. Um, either way, like even if you don't, doesn't it kind of feel like the New Year's just kind of the time to start something? It just feels like this is the time. You're going to, if you want to make some changes, this is a good time. Now, um, if you hesitate, I get it because we all kind of know the stats on New Year's resolutions, right? It's hard to get those things to stick. Uh, 80% of people who start off thinking they're going to do something uh, end up stopping their resolution by the second week in February. Did you know that? Just, just, just like 80%. Um, and then ultimately, only 8% of people actually like, make it, so to speak. They go from not having some kind of habit to actually making it a part of their life or getting rid of something. Only 8% actually succeed. And I'm not telling you that to discourage you. It's just, it's just real. Actually, I want to do the opposite. Can you, uh, with me, imagine that you are the 8%? Okay, can you imagine, if you have a resolution, or even if you don't, like, can you imagine setting out to, to make a change in some way and actually succeeding? Can you imagine that with me, that you, uh, you set out to uh, change your diet, and you, and you do, you completely change your diet, you, um, you don't go to Target anymore, okay? You, you don't click buy now anymore, maybe. Uh, you, you get your finances under control. You don't yell at your kids anymore. You know, now that they're back in school tomorrow, maybe this is possible. Um, you're, you're more intentional with your spouse. You don't waste so much time staring at your phone. Whatever you set out to do, you actually do it. You, you succeed, but it doesn't work. Can you imagine that? Like you change your diet completely, but you don't lose any weight. You don't look any different. Uh, you change your, change your spending completely, but your, your savings account is, is stuck. Uh, you change your parenting completely, but your kids are still little brats. You, uh, you change the way you treat your spouse completely, but your marriage is still blah. Can you imagine that? Imagine you did all the work, but you didn't get any of the desired results. Imagine you put in the blood, sweat, and tears, but you got nothing back. You invested, but you didn't get a return. You, you work really hard, but your work didn't work. So I got to quit, <laughs> right? So this situation uh, is exactly what the people of Israel find themselves in in the book of Haggai. Uh, so let me give you a, a quick backstory. I know you're all experts on the book of Haggai. It's totally your favorite book. It's just it's very uh, obscure, small Old Testament book. Um, about this prophet named Haggai. So he's a prophet to the people of Israel. People of Israel were in exile uh, in this country called Persia, but a king named Darius actually allows the people to return their homeland and, and kind of rebuild their lives. So they're coming back. People of Israel are excited because this return had been prophesied for decades. They're, they're really excited. They have some expectations. Um, and God has promised to do some really cool things. The Jerusalem, the capital city, is kind of like God's city. He said, you know, I'm going to return this thing to its former glory. It's going to be awesome. So um, the people, kind of their situation is they're not where they were, but, but they're not yet where they're going. They're, they're, they're grateful that they are not back in exile, but they're still got this anticipation that God is going to do something moving forward. It's kind of that in-between place. I feel like a lot of us are there, right? You're, you're in this place where um, you're, you're hopefully grateful that you're not wherever you were, but you're still, like, I got a dissatisfaction looking forward to what God is going to do. Uh, so God gives Haggai, this prophet, a message to the people. And uh, I want to start in verse 5. Uh, now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, 
Consider your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes but you cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. So uh, here are the people of Israel doing work, but they're getting dissatisfying results, right? They plant, and they actually plant a lot, but they harvest little. They eat, but they're still hungry. They drink, but they're still thirsty. They, they got a warm, fuzzy sweatshirt on, but they're still cold. They put in hours and hours and hours punching that time clock, and the bank account's still empty. So there's a, a disconnect, kind of like there is between this TV and the computer. There's supposed to be this disconnect between the work that they're doing and the results that they're getting. Disconnect between the work that they're doing and the results that they're getting. Now, for me, this is worst case scenario. I don't know about you, but if I'm not going to get the results, I, I don't want to do the work, right? If, if I'm not going to look different, I'm not going to eat different, right? If I'm not going to get uh, the, the results that I want, why would I want to do the work? And that's the situation that people of Israel find themselves in. They're doing this work. They're putting in the, the hours and the time and the effort, and the thing that they want to happen isn't happening. They're kind of like... Like running up a sand dune. You ever feel like that? Like you're, 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 you're working, 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 but you're not making any progress towards where you want to go. So that's terrible. I want you to also imagine with me, what if, what if you were in a situation, and I think this is worse, what if you do the work and you get the results, but you still don't find that satisfying? What if you get the thing? Whatever the thing was that you're after, what if you get it and it still like, doesn't do it? Right? You get to the top of the hill and you're thinking, this was it. This is the, the hill that I wanted to get to the top of. And you're up there and you're going, oh, it's like, okay. That's not what I thought, right? It doesn't scratch the itch. It doesn't uh, satisfy the hunger, quench the thirst. You get it. You know, you, you finally get married. You thought it was going to be it. And it's not, it's not what you thought it was going to be, you know. Uh, you finally have kids and you're like, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was going to be, right? You get, right? you get the job and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Like, you get the thing. You, you actually got the result that you wanted and you found out that it still doesn't do it. That's kind of where we're at as a society in general. I mean, maybe this is where you're at personally, right? I mean, we have unlimited data and we're still bored. We have all-you-can-eat buffets, but we're still hungry. You have bottomless margaritas and you're still thirsty, right? You have a couple days off and you're still tired. What is up with that? You're, we're doing the things. We're even maybe getting some results, but they're not satisfying. So it begs the question. It begs the question. Why? Why? Why am I doing all this work and not getting the results that I want? Why, why am I putting in the time and not getting the thing? Or, or worse, why am I getting the results that I've always wanted and I still have this nagging dissatisfaction like lurking around in my soul? Why? Why? So God actually answers this question for the people of Israel in the book of Haggai. That's why it's kind of so cool. So they're experiencing the same thing we're experiencing, and God actually tells them why. He gives them the answer. It's in uh, verses 9 and 10. You hoped for a rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought home, your harvest home, whatever you did get, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. 
Ouch. Shots fired by God. So the situation, this, this is not us. This is the people of Israel. You, you're good. You're good. Situation 2,500 years ago, those people, what they were doing, see, um, God brought them out of exile. They should be super grateful. That's a, that's a life change right there, right? They were in exile. Now they're home. They're in their place where, like, this is the land that God promised to them. Like, this is it. They're home. And um, when he brought them home, they decided that, like, they were going to take care of themselves. You know, I'm going to do me. You see, I'm nervous because some of you have said that before. You know, like, I'm going to do me. And it sounds right, right? You know, in the self-care world that we live in, this is what we, I got I to do me for a while. So that was kind of their, their attitude. They worried about their own stuff, their own lives, their own houses. All the while, God's house, the temple, is, is a pile of rubble and lies in ruins. So the temple had been destroyed way back when they went into exile. And when they got home, they did nothing with it. They're building their own houses. They're not building God's house. And by the way, just so you know, like, it's not, just that the, it's not like just a roof over their head. Like God's not being unreasonable saying, you should build my house while you sleep on the grass until you're done. He's not saying that, actually. Notice it says um, that they're busy building their own fine houses. Other translations say paneled houses. Like they're upgrading is what that means. Okay, they're, they're redoing the bathroom, putting in tile. They're getting new appliances. They're, they're upgrading what they got all the while God's temple is sitting in rubble. Okay, so, so that's what God is saying, like, hey, you're working on your stuff, but you're kind of ignoring my stuff. And because of that, poor harvest. And even what you are getting, he's blowing away, which, by the way, that's a really big statement. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But he said, even what you do bring home, which isn't as much as you thought you were going to get, I blow it away as soon as it gets there. Whew. So what can we learn? Because this is nuts. This isn't us, right? I want to separate myself from, from this and say, hey, we don't have a, te- there's no temple, you know, that we're, we're not rebuilding. It's not, there's no rubble that we're supposed to put back together. What can we actually learn from this 2,500 years later? I think the answer is, um, I just want to admit it's a Christian cliche. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this before. And I want you to know I hate using Christian cliches. I hate it. Um, I hate doing anything you expect. That's why we put demons on stage on Christmas, stuff like that. <laughs> because usually once you hear something that you, at least you perceive you already know it, your brain kind of turns off, right? Your brain automatically just says, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before and didn't change my life then. Why would it change my life now? You know, kind of a thing. So like, can you help, can you tell your brain to shut up for a minute? Because <laughs> I'm guessing even if you know this, it's one of those things that you kind of have to keep knowing, if that means. You have to keep re- maybe relearning it, relooking at it, because I think it's one of those things you kind of slide backwards and you have to work your way back up. The problem that the people of Israel had 2,500 years later or earlier, and the problem that we have now is that um, we don't put God first. We don't put God first. I know, you've heard that before. But in this story, a bunch of other stuff had come before rebuilding the temple, right? They, they just kind of knocked God down the priority list. And everything, this is the really important part, and this is the part I want you to see. Everything that got put above God became dissatisfying. And, 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 and they, they, it didn't do the thing. It, it, it became something that they didn't think was going. It didn't, it didn't satisfy like they thought. Disappointment and dissatisfaction. 
Everything that they put above God produced disappointment and dissatisfaction. Everything that they put above God became disappointing and dissatisfying. I don't want to look at the implications of that sentence, do you? Because evidently what happens is when you order your life wrong and you put things above God, those things can't handle that position. Those, those things that, you know, whatever it may be that you've put above God, it can't handle being there and it, 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 it turns to ash. It, it becomes hollow and shallow and it, and it doesn't work when it's put above God. What if that's it? You made a good thing, a God thing, and now it's a bad thing. You made a good thing, a God thing, and now it's a bad thing. What if that's the reason you work really hard, but you don't get the results you want? What if that's the reason even the results you do get are so dissatisfying? What if that's the reason you work your tail off and you still feel like you don't have anything? What if that's the reason you pour your life into your career and it still feels shallow, it still feels hollow? What if that's the reason um, you have right now more than you've ever had before and you still want more? What if that's the reason you go to games and movies and restaurants and you're like still bored? It's because you haven't put God first. You haven't put God first like overall in your life and you haven't put God first in each area of your life. What if that's the, the cause of your disappointment and dissatisfaction? See, because I think what happens is it kind of tumbles down the hill because the moment you replace God, the moment God's not at the top, you drop him down. And then what you do is you start to see God as a means to an end rather than an end of himself. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what, so you start to do this mental math where you're thinking, hey, um, I'm going to see God as a way to get things that in my head are actually more important than him right now, rather than seeing him as the one who gives those things meaning and purpose. You start to, we never say it, start to kind of use God to get what we really want. And I think part of the reason, part of the reason we do that it's because we slipped in another place mentally and we, we think we have this like false dichotomy in our head where we have like the stuff we want to uh, do, experience, have. Um, and then you have the stuff that God wants on the other side. And you think of the stuff that you want as like exciting and, and engaging. And you think of the stuff as God, that God wants as like boring and monotonous. And that's, I get how you could see, think that way on the surface, but, but this is actually a lie that your stuff is, is, is where it's at. And well, if I have to do some stuff for God so that he'll give me this stuff over here, I will. It's kind of a trick. You don't, do, I hope you don't do this like actually out loud in your head, if that makes sense. Um, hopefully it's really buried deep in the subconscious, but you're kind of trading. I'll do this if you give me this. And here's the, here's the, the for me, this is the, the whole thing is wrong. Because actually, if you really want to live a rich and satisfying life, you put God first. That's actually the way it's supposed to work. If you, re- this is why it's, it's actually, uh, it's counterintuitive, but it's good for you to not live for you. Is that, that, that's a weird statement to say, but when you, when you do you, it doesn't work. 
and, and it turns to ash and it, it becomes disappointing and dissatisfying because you're doing you and you weren't created to do you. You were created to do God. You were created to put God first. So, so when you live over here thinking this is going to work and then you keep finding yourself like more and more dissatisfied, more and more disappointed and you wonder why. And then here's the crazy part because what people do is they lean more into this. They think I must not be being selfish enough so I better even do me more. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. They think that the problem is, is to lean more into me when in reality it's, it's, it's because you've already done that too much and you need to, to put God back at the top. Because when you live for you, it's kind of like drinking salt water when you're dying of thirst. You know, it's, oh man, my lips are not dry anymore. My throat's maybe not dry anymore, but you're dying and you're dying quicker because of it. So what if, what if you made a decision this year that you're going to put God first? What if you made that decision? Let's, from a distance, let's look at this. You don't have to walk right up to it. You can look at it from a distance. What if you put God first when it comes to your time, your calendar? What if you put God first there? What if you put God first when it comes to your finances? What if, what if your, your bank account, your bills, um, your generosity, all that, you put God first there? What if you could put God first in your relationships? What if you put God first at work? What if you put God first uh, at play? What if you put God first in your parenting? What if you put God first in your sex life? What if you put God first in your major decisions, in your minor decisions? What if you put God first while you're scrolling on your phone, while you're rolling down the highway, while you're paying your bills, while you're having conversations in the break room? What if you put God first in like every area of your life? What if you made that decision? Now, making the decision is, is, is not all of it, right? Um, I know that making the decision to put God first and actually living that out are two very different things, right? There are two very different things. But I will tell you, the, the way to live it out, the, the first step is to make the decision, right? You can't, you can't live as if you're putting God first if you don't make the decision to put God first. So it's kind of the first step. If you, if you want to put God first in your life, you have to make the decision to do it. See, I know what happens in these sermons. I've sat in them enough where you are that I know what I do when I hear this. Um, like the, I'm trying to decide what comes first. Usually I'll start to think of an, like, well, I think usually the Holy Spirit's putting something on my mind. It'll be an area of my life. That God's not first. That's usually why it'll, it'll be some fuzzy thing. And I don't want to look at it. Start to ignore whatever God's doing over here. You're like, okay, God. That's probably maybe one stage you were going through. And then the next thing that happens is, is an emotion bubbles up and it's fear. I'm afraid of what happens if I put him first in that area that he's talking to me about. Um, and then usually if I let the fear go, I won't go any, I'll, that's where I'll stop. I'll stop it. Isn't that weird that sometimes um, <laughs> going to church, you now perceive, uh, if you've gone to church your whole life, you perceive having a spiritual experience as feeling guilty. Like that's what it means to have a spiritual experience. I kind of feel guilty today. For, that was a good one, pastor. <laughs> Never my goal. Never at the top of the whiteboard. I'm like, make them feel guilty. Ever is my goal. 
That's not a spiritual experience. I mean, it is, but it's not the desired one, okay? That's not what I'm after. I'm not sitting here hoping that you have some vague feeling of I don't put God first and I'm afraid of whatever that would mean and I don't want to go any further past that. I don't want, that's not my goal. I want you to push through that, to, to allow God to say, hey, this area of your life, I'm not first and you need to put me first there. And you look at it, and then, then when you feel that fear, go, yeah, 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 but I trust that, that if I put him first, that he's going to, it might hurt, but he's going to do some things with it. And on the other side, I'm actually going to be better than if I hadn't put him first. Ultimately, I want you to go all the way through that. So if you're sitting here in stage one, where you're like kind of got a vague idea of something that's not right in your life, or if you're in stage two, where you're just like, I'm too afraid to even look further at that, push through, push through. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. <laughs> that's not what God wants. So here's the deal. This is, this is it, though. This is, this is the point, because you have a decision. You have a decision of whether you want to even see it's the first step. Do you want to say, I'm putting God first? Do you just want to say it? Because some people, you're not even there yet. Like, I don't know, I got some stuff. It's mine. But this is step one. Do you even want to say it? You have a decision. It's a decision. It's where it starts. So you have to decide, do I want to put God first or not? Now, you're faced with it. We're faced with it, and the people of Israel were faced with it too, 2,500 years earlier, okay? I want to show you what they did with the decision, okay? And it's clever. It's clever. So look at what, look at what God says in, it's actually back in verse 2. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Genius. So if you want to get out of doing what God wants in your life, I've got a way. I've got a way. Okay? It's a guilt-free way. Instead of saying no, say not yet. You're welcome. I just did the opposite of what I'm supposed to do up here. I just helped you go the opposite direction. But isn't that genius? Why does that feel better? It does, though, doesn't it? Can we just be honest? It's, it feels nicer uh, to say not yet to God rather than no, doesn't it? It just, for some reason, uh, we like that. You know, it gives me have that kind of like a conversation. Hey, God, so um, I'm not saying no. <laughs> uh, I'd never tell you no, God. I respect you too much for that. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, not right now. You know, I'll get to it eventually. I'm going to. Um, at a future time, TBD, we'll, we'll, I'll get back to you. Kind of, my people call your people. We'll, we'll, we'll get this done, you know, but just not now, right? Telling God no feels wrong. If you you grew up in church, if you're a Christian, you kind of know that you can't tell God no. Obviously, disobedience is obviously sinful. But when we tell God not yet, it it doesn't feel so bad. And and I think the reason is because you're kind of lying to yourself, right? You're kind of lying to yourself. It feels like you're saying yes, like a future yes, right? It's a delayed yes, even though we're not. It feels like we're being obedient just at a future time. But delaying is not obeying. Delaying is not obeying. And I'm guessing if, if you have, again, like if you grew up in church, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while, this is probably some version of what you do, right? When it comes to putting God first in different areas of your life, you don't say no, you say not now. I'll get to it. I will later. No feels wrong, not now feels okay. And maybe like that's the current state of your entire spiritual life right now. Maybe your status when it comes to your spiritual life, is not now. You got not now blinking over your head. I'm not saying no, God. I'm just, I got some stuff I'm going to do first, and then I'll get to it. Now, 
I was researching this story this week, and it was really interesting. Theologians and scholars actually kind of believe that this little phrase here, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, became a, a saying. So it's, it's not just that they said it, it's that they, they, it became like a saying, you know, if you're comforting your newly single friend, there are plenty of fish in the sea. It's a saying, right? You say, you don't really mean anything at this point, but you say it to try and comfort them. That's, that's what this became. Um, so so they, they have this saying and they use it for all different kinds of things. You know, if, if the family's getting ready to go plant the field and you don't really want to plant the field right now, you know, time's not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You know, if it's time to go uh, thresh the wheat and you don't want to, you say, well, the time is not yet come to rebuild the house. If the wife tells you to take out the trash, you just say, the time is not yet come to rebuild the house. It became kind of this like cliched thing that people would say. It used to mean one thing and now it kind of means another thing. And see, isn't that the problem with delaying though? Because at first they meant it. They meant it. They, they, they meant that later. They meant not now. But eventually, they didn't mean it anymore, right? At first, it really was their intent to rebuild at a later date. But eventually, the intent faded. They said it, but they didn't mean it anymore. They said it to comfort themselves in their own disobedience. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying not now. I think that's why delaying is so dangerous. So dangerous. Now, so that's a fun little thing that the, all the scholars kind of look at and say, yeah, it like became like this, this thing that, that people would say in Israel. But the thing that uh, scholars can't agree on is why they procrastinated in the first place. It's a really interesting thing that, that, they, that nobody can really definitively say why they started this in the first place. Why didn't they just rebuild when they got there? Why, why did they procrastinate? Um, so there's a lot of speculation uh, some scholars say that maybe it was because the conditions weren't favorable. They just got back from exile. It's a big transitional period. Things aren't quite right to start that big of a project. We're going to wait until conditions imp to improve. God, not right now, because things are a little messy right now. And, and when things calm down and conditions are more favorable, then we'll do the thing that you want us to do. Now, some scholars think that. Others, others think it's because they faced opposition. They faced opposition. There were people in the land who didn't want them to rebuild the temple. They had enemies who um, opposed them. And maybe the reason they, they wanted to delay was because they just wanted, you know, they wanted that, that, that noise to kind of calm down. They wanted everybody to be on board with this decision. So we're just going to wait until everybody is, agrees. And then we'll do it, God. Not now. When things calm down then. Other scholars just say it's because they were busy. You know, it's just tons. Of, getting back from exile is a stressful thing, as I'm sure you know. It's just such a common thing, right? Um, they had a life to rebuild. They, they had so many things going on. So maybe what they were thinking was, God, you know, my to-do list is just so long right now. Let us, let us shrink this to-do list down. And, and as, we, as we get less and less things on to-do list, then we'll put you first. Or maybe, maybe it was because they were barely surviving themselves. I mean, we already saw that they were planting much and harvesting little, right? So maybe they were waiting for a harvest to hit. You know what I mean? Like, we need a good year here, God. You give us a good year, and then we'll do the thing. We're, we, can, we can't even, you know, we, 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 we don't have any margin in life right now, Lord. We're just scraping by in every area. So once we get some margin, then we'll do what you want us to do. Any of those sound familiar? <laughs> 
possible reasons. You might tell God, not yet, not now, later. Conditions aren't favorable. Maybe you face some opposition in your life. Maybe you got a lot going on right now. Maybe you're just barely keeping your own head above water right now, so you're telling God, not yet. But man, don't, don't make the same mistake the people of Israel made here. What I desperately want you to see is that there's a connection between your satisfaction in life and the procrastination of telling God later. There's a connection between your satisfaction level and, and delay. And they're inversely related. The more you procrastinate, the less satisfaction you have. The, the more you delay, the lower your fulfillment level. The, the, the more you say, not now, God, the lower your gratification in life. There's a connection here. So, so see, it's, it's, again, it's like this counterintuitive thing. Lord, I got I to gotta take care of me. It's not even a luxury thing, God. I just feel like I can't do this right now. And, and, and actually, by doing that, you're making your own situation worse by not just saying yes to God and having faith that he will help you through that. Psalm 119.60 says, I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. Tattoo that on my kid's forehead. It's, isn't that weird though? As a parent, I'm like so annoyed when my kids don't, I mean, literally last night, we were, I wasn't yelling because we don't yell ever. Um, <laughs> it was like, time for bed. And the three-year-old goes up the stairs. The two older ones are just standing there. I'm like, what's going on here? Usually he's the one who yells and screams, and you guys are just standing here. It, the, the delay, it, it, drives me, it drives me nuts from this point of view. But then, like, when it's God, I have a totally different like, he just understands. I'm like, well, you don't understand what your kids delay, so why do you think? It's weird. Isn't that weird how you kind of do like a totally different thing when it's reversed? This should be our default with God. When he nudges, you want to hurry without delay to go do the thing that he wants you to do. And if we put it in the context of what we're talking about today, to put him first in, in whatever, area, whatever area he's nudging on, you want to do it now. All the excuses, all the reasons, you just want to say, no, no, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Because, by the way, did you see verse 9? You hoped for a rich harvest, but they were poor, and then when you brought your harvest home, even though the, the, whatever poor harvest it was, when you brought it home, I blew it away. I, that's God speaking. God saying he blew away their harvest, the harvest that they brought in. Not Satan. Wouldn't the devil, we blame the devil for everything, don't we? But, but here, God's saying, no, it wasn't him, it was me. And, and I think what that shows, because it sounds mean, right? Like, why would God be mean? <laughs> but it, it tells us that God's not going to let us build our lives on secondary things. He's not going to let us make good things God things, because he knows it wouldn't be good for us. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal, right? That, that ultimately, to, to ultimately have God working against you. That's a crazy thing to say. Like, to have God standing opposed, to have God blowing away any progress you make, God pushing back against your life because you've pushed him down the priority list. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. That's crazy. You should picture yourself guzzling a, a jug of salt water and God smacking it out of your hand. What the heck? God's like, That's, I love you. <laughs> That's terrible. Stop. Right? And maybe that's the most spectacular truth of all, is that in this story, everything God does is motivated by love. 
Maybe that's the most spectacular part of it. Even when we have our life completely disordered, God still loves us fiercely. Even when we push him down the priority list and disrespect him, he still loves us. Even when we delay in our obedience to him, he still loves us. If the cross means anything, it's that no matter what you do, no matter how far you run from God, he still fiercely loves you. And that when you put your faith in what Jesus did on that cross, you're clean, you're forgiven. Spectacular. And that's the thing that's supposed to motivate us. That's the thing that's supposed to do it. It's not fear. It's not guilt. It's love. Love is the motivator. That God first loved you and now you can turn around and order your life the right way. Not because you're afraid he's going to screw everything up. But because he fiercely loves you. And actually ordering your life the way he says to, to order it is the best thing. It ultimately will be the best for you. So what is it? What is it? The thing, you know. What area of your life is God nudging on today? That he's saying, hey, you know, I'm not first here, and maybe that's why it's messed up. Maybe that's why it's dissatisfying. Maybe that's why it's disappointing. What specific area? You could say your whole life, and maybe, maybe, maybe some of you do need to just kind of plant a flag in the ground and say, I'm going to put God first everywhere. But my guess is there's certain areas where you kind of got it and certain areas where you definitely don't. So I'm just asking, what's, what's God doing in your heart right now? What area do you need to say, okay, let's look at this. I've got it completely out of order, and I need to put God back at the top. And I guess I, I want to end with this. Um, I believe, like, God has really big plans for this church. Every pastor thinks that, by the way but I really believe it. Come on, that's funny. Shut up. Like, I believe that God wants to use this church to, like, melt the spiritual glacier that sits outside. Not the physical one, the spiritual one. I believe God wants to use this church like a battering ram against the gates of hell. I believe God wants to use this church to reach people that no one else is reaching. I really do believe that. Um, If you're newer here, we're not just here kind of do church. I hopefully you can tell that there's so many easier ways to do church than this. So many easier ways to do church than this. But we do it this way on purpose because we really do feel like God is calling us to be a church for people who don't think church is for them. And there's some pieces of that that are fun and exciting. And there's some pieces of that that are really hard. And I, I feel like we're called to be that. I feel like God has, has almost, I don't want to say appointed, but like he's picked us to say, hey, you get in the game, you do that. You, this, is your, this is your part in a battle to fight. I really believe that. But see, when I say us, I mean us, like as in you are a part of that. Um, and maybe, maybe that's part of the tension we collectively are feeling too. Like, like we have to make the decision to put God first. The more of us that, that do that, the, the more effective we will be. So if we don't make that decision, and that means if you don't make the decision, <laughs> here's the crappy part, you're not just hurting you, you're hurting us. So I'm mad at you. Because <laughs> that's what it means to be a church, right? We're connected in a lot of different ways. We're connected. Uh, and and when, when certain uh, parts of that connection don't, don't do what they're supposed to do, it hurts everybody else. Um, so I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is I feel like, 
I feel like there's this thing out there that God really, and it's big. It's, it's not something that's just kind of little. It's not something that's just kind of okay. I feel like God's called us to this like great, crazy thing. But I kind of feel like this story is about us. <laughs> like we're right there. We're seeing it. And, and the results we're getting aren't quite what we want. And I think it's because we got to put God first. We got to put God first. Um, so if you weren't motivated selfishly, be motivated collectively. That man, together, I feel like God wants to do something here. And maybe he's waiting on us. He's like, hey, I, I, want, I want to do, I want to do some things. I, he, that's the story, right? He's like, I want to bless Jerusalem. I want to make this nation great again, but I'm waiting. I, I'm waiting on you, actually. God's ready. He's kind of waiting. And, and maybe that's what he's looking at us saying, like, hey, so I want you to feel that. Like, I, I, we're all in this together. I'm looking at my life, too, saying, hey, what, what, needs to, what needs to get bumped down so that God can put back up there? Because I really feel like he wants to do something special. I really do. I really do. I hope you care about that. It's so weird. I'm a pastor. I know I care about church. But like, this is the thing, right? This is the thing that ripples into eternity. And we can be a part of doing some really crazy things that ripple all the way out into eternity. And that's what I want to see. I hope you do too.